Brian McClanahan Show, episode 440. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a lot of great stuff out there. Look, over a dozen classes for you to purchase. It's a win-win. You get a great class, great content, and you support this show, and this podcast stays free of charge. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get a book plate if you want one of my autographs or one of my books. I've got seven of those out. So that's another great way to support the show. I've got a new book coming out probably within the next month or so. So you want to look for that as well. I've also got a new class coming out in June. Originalist Papers Part 3 at McClanahan Academy. All kinds of great stuff going on. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to learn true, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com, uh, learn excuse me, that's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there with Tom and a lot of other great instructors. All kinds of ways to support the show, but the best way, of course, is to share this podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally, and that you're really interested in that message. Now, a lot of times, I mean, I have that side of the show, but I also do some things that are tied into politics and uh, the larger questions of conservatism, larger questions of history. This week, I'm going to focus on several of those things. Of course, the first episode this week, we focused on Alan Gelzo's five-point plan on how to keep monuments up, or at least some monuments that he deems essential. And my response to that is just, no, shut up. That's what we should say to all these people that want to take these things out. No, shut up. Stop whining. Stop being a baby. Because when you think about it, their, their arguments have so many holes in it. Now, for th- many of them, right, for many of the people, the 1619 people, they would tear down everything. They wouldn't care. That's the problem. But see, Gelzo thinks that there's going to be a halfway house. Well, we'll go along with you on these things, but then these things have to stay up. But if you look at the language the people at the 1619 Project use, there's no way they're going to think that these monuments to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, James Madison, any of that would stay up. It can't, because not if you are a true revolutionary. It can't stay up. And Americans might say, well, we're going to draw the line at that. Maybe now. But what happens when all this stuff gets taught in schools? What happens when all these things? I mean, Confederate monuments is low-hanging fruit. Look, I mean, I've already, they're coming down, and they're going to come down in states that are purple, fast, Virginia, North Carolina. We're seeing some of it even in some bluer areas of states like Alabama. Georgia. I mean, these are things that are happening. But where do you draw the line? Now, Gelzo is trying to draw the line. 
But the line is going to be, they're just going to plow right over it. It's, it's just ridiculous how foolish these people are, how short-sighted they really are. Their answer should be, no, shut up. You want to take down a Confederate monument? No, shut up. Just go on. There's no reason for that. So I want to focus on this larger issue of conservatism, though, because I put Alan Gelzo as a conservative in quotations. And last week, the American Greatness website, or American Greatness, ran a hit piece on Yours Truly by Michael Anton. It's based on an article I wrote in Chronicles Magazine criticizing the 1776 Project. Now, that particular article is well-received from people in what's often called the paleoconservative side of things. Why? Because I, I identified, and I think this is accurate, that the 1776 Commission and the 1619 Project are two sides of the same coin. I'm going to make this analogy as well when I get into one of the other pieces this week that I'm going to talk about. That there are, we're, we're dealing with two sides of the same coin on a lot of issues in America. And they're two sides of the same coin because they essentially believe in myths. But they also believe in the proposition nation. The 1619 Project believes in the proposition nation. The problem is that no one ever adhered to that. The 1776 Commission report believes that the founders were a proposition nation people, but they just were thwarted. It was too hard to do, but they firmly believed in it. They were committed, and there were things that they did to make this happen. Now, there will be a follow-up piece by yours truly in Chronicles, probably in next month's issue. Uh, and I go through a lot of these things that Anton says. I don't want to go through that piece because it's very long. In fact, I wrote 2,000 words. He wrote 6,000 words. I mean, so, come on. He, he chided me for not providing footnotes. Who provides? He didn't provide any footnotes. Nobody does. In a 2,000 or a 6,000-word piece designed to be uh, provocative, more than anything, but he had so many holes in his arguments, I punched right through all of them, and that, this is the problem with people like Michael Anton. This is the problem with the neoconservatives, and Michael Anton is a neoconservative. He may not like to be called that, he may not think that he is, but he is. All the Straussians, which is what Michael Anton is, are neoconservatives. They may disagree on, say, a foreign policy issue, and Anton made it very clear that he's come around to the paleo side of foreign policy. He starts to think that things are here and here, and we, we have some agreements on some things. Uh, I'm starting to see that, you know, endless wars are bad. Uh, and great, great for Michael Anton that he's seeing light, but he can't see the light on the other side. And it's, it's a problem because of another piece I'm going to talk about this week. It'll be tomorrow's podcast. It's a problem because these people all have a certain element to them that is tied into this belief that if you don't say you're anti-racist or you're anti-slavery, then by default you are racist and pro-slavery. I mean, this is so stupid. In the 21st century, why? and I said this yesterday, why would anyone have to make that claim in the 21st century? I mean, why would you have to sit here and say, well, you know what, I'm going to qualify this by saying I'm not pro-slavery. Is anybody pro-slavery? I mean, come on now. Uh, and, and if you say the founders were racists, which they were, that doesn't mean you're a racist. It doesn't mean that you're following that line of thinking. But they were. This is what they were. And in, in the piece, the foreshadowing, Anton brings up in his first piece an argument where he says, look, McClanahan uh, says that the founders downplayed the line, all men are created equal. They did. And, 
you can say they downplayed it by default or downplayed it in action or they downplayed it in words. Jefferson himself downplayed it in the 1820s. He did. He did it in a letter to Henry Lee. He downplayed it. Uh, but And then Anton says, well, look at all these state declarations of rights that use some form of the word equality. Well, we have to get into that. What does that word equality actually mean? And I do that in the piece that I'm, I'm writing. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, crush my own peace, you're going to have to read that. But in one instance, he brings up the Connecticut Constitution. This is the funniest part where he doesn't understand context. He doesn't understand uh, that he can make these claims, but I mean, it's so easy to put holes in them. It's simple. He brings up the Connecticut Constitution, which was written in 1818. Look here. This is his gotcha moment. Look at all these state declaration of rights that use equality. The Connecticut Constitution of 1818 uses the term. They use the term, I think it's all men are born free and equal, something like that. In the same year, in the exact same year they ratified this new constitution, the legislature passed a law denying the ability for blacks in Connecticut to vote. Now, you would think that people that were so committed to this, and this is his point, these people were committed to it. They were committed to it, but they didn't know how to wrestle with this issue of slavery or race. They just didn't know what to do with it. They were committed, though, particularly in New England, where they were really committed. Southerners, eh, maybe a little lukewarm, but New England was committed. So you would think in New England, in Connecticut, these people that were so committed to this, they would have certainly given blacks, blacks uh, the right to vote. They would have advocated black suffrage in Connecticut. Not so. In fact, they denied it, explicitly denied it. By legislation. And that's just one instance of these things. I mean, and I go through this in this piece. It's just funny to me how these people think they can get away with this stuff. They say, well, the founders weren't racist. Well, they were. And who cares, right? My whole point of this is who cares if they were? They're still a great generation of men. In fact, I've called them the greatest generation of Americans. I've called them that many, many times over. I don't need to go through my bona fides on how I admire the founding generation. My point is, you can still admire these men, even if they had faults from modern society, a point of view, even if they said some things that we don't agree with. They also did a, a bunch of remarkable things that our generation of Americans, I don't think, uh, even gets close to coming to. So this is why Michael Anton is... Completely laughable. I mean, the man is laughable when it comes down to it. Now, I want to go through this piece. Paul Gottfried actually defended me. He published a piece at American Greatness responding to Michael Anton. Curiously, though, when you go to American Greatness and you do a search for Paul Gottfried, Paul Gottfried, the author, doesn't show up anymore at American Greatness. Interesting. And this piece that Paul Gottfried wrote, defending yours truly... Defending yours truly is not there. It's gone. You have to search for high and low to find this thing. And this piece that Michael Anton responds to doesn't link Paul Gottfried's piece. This is highly problematic. Because, you see, it's like they're trying to suppress these things. American Greatness does publish, quote-unquote, paleoconservatives all the time. But now Paul Gottfried is being, I don't know if he's being blacklisted. I don't know what's happening here. I have no idea. It's curious. 
how this is happening. And so I want to read this piece. It came out May 8th. What are paleoconservatives conserving? He says, there is less dividing Paul Gottfried and me than I would have expected, which is good for when the orc hordes at Sauron's urging come for both of us. They aren't going to discern, much less care about, any academic differences over this or that statement from the American founding era. They're going to see us identically as enemies to be exterminated. Well, I agree with that. But why? Why are they going to do it? Well, you've opened the door to the orcs. You see, people like Michael Anton have opened the door to He's saying, I've done it. In reality, the neoconservatives have been doing this for years, for years, because they won't say things like, no, shut up. They'll say, well, you know, we can see your point on these things. We can see how, uh, you know, well, I mean, these, these people, now the founders weren't racist, but what about these other people later on? I mean, we do have these problems in America, and they pick leftist heroes as their heroes. And so all that common ground causes a situation where you're going to have to purge these people, and you're going to let them do it, but then, you can't purge us. This is the Dantonists. This is the, the Girondins. This is what these people are. He says, I also welcome this chance to reiterate some points that bear repeating. To those bored with repetition, I can only say what I learned in politics apparently applies to intellectual debates as well. If you want your message to break through, you can't repeat it often enough. This exchange also gives me the opportunity to take a few more whacks at Cracker Jack Claremontism, which can't be beaten often enough. So, he, look... He's trying to say, ah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is, uh, we, we got these problems with our school of thought. Yeah, they run these things, and this is problematic. But and this is the stuff that's been going on for a long time. The Claremont Hillsdale School does indeed hold that all human beings are, have inalienable rights to life and liberty. Well, okay. Life and liberty. Great. I actually argue in my piece that's coming out that liberty is the core tenet of conservatism. Not equality. But liberty, and by default, when you believe in liberty, there has to come inequalities. Now, we can get into, and another argument, what that actually means. I wouldn't say that there is there are natural inequalities. I would say, in, in a way, based on race or anything like that, there's nothing there. But people have natural inequalities for other things. What does equality actually mean? Liberty and equality are going to be two different. They're in conflict often at times. Godfrey continues from here that this did not mean that for the founders all men were equally entitled to citizenship or that all human beings were equally fit to exercise that right. And he's absolutely right. Only crackerjack Claremontism holds that silly view. Anyone who's actually studied the founders, and if we've done nothing else, we've certainly done that, knows that it's false. So he's trying to say, well, we're the, we're the enlightened Claremont people. We don't actually believe this. It's just crackerjack Claremontism. But you see, where would they get this nonsense from, these crackerjack Claremontism people? From you! From you. So he says, let's talk about these two issues separately. The first is membership in the political community. We must say that for the American founders, their government ex exclusivity as a political community internationally mirrors the principles of freedom and association at the domestic level. Just government originates in the social compact, that is, a compact in which men freely choose to form a government for their mutual protection and benefit. At the founding of such a government, agreement on membership must be unanimous and in both directions. That is, no one who doesn't want to be in the compact can be forced to join, but also no one whom others don't want to take in can be allowed to join either. The social compact is invitation only. Now, this is curious because it has to be unanimous. 
What about the Constitution? Was that unanimous? Was it unanimous consent that these states joined the Constitution? No, it wasn't unanimous. It wasn't unanimous at all. Now, by state, you can say, well, every state eventually ratified it. That made it unanimous. But only 9 of 13 had to ratify to make it a governing document for the United States. So was that unanimous? And how did these states work? Were these votes unanimous in these state ratifying conventions? So if there was any dissent, does that mean that that was not a unanimous assent to the social compact? I mean, this is where, again, Anton is failing in the very basic tenets of what he's saying. He doesn't, he's, he, there's all kinds of conflict within this. And the federal government is not a social compact in as much as it's a federal compact between states. It remains so in perpetuity for newcomers. So it's only invitation if you're a newcomer. But children born to members of the existing compact are automatically made members, but may, if they, they later choose, renounce that membership via immigration. Only via immigration. You could, Well, okay, so if we have a compact, if the United States government's a compact, then what Anton is essentially saying is you're free to leave. This is where the Claremontists, and I talked about this with the piece by Glenn Elmers, they're kind of, they're in crisis here, because if they firmly follow the line of thinking all through this, and they come to this conclusion, which you have to, then secession becomes a natural right. To leave becomes a natural right, a right of liberty. This is what you have to do. It's your liberty to leave. Well, a political community, which is a state, then can be at liberty to leave if that community decides to do so. No one from outside the compact, however, may join it without consent of its, of its existing members. As Gouverneur Morris, the man who actually wrote the U.S. Constitution, <laughs> put it, every society from a great nation down to a club has the right of declaring the conditions on which new members shall be admitted. Well, I agree. This is funny that he said Gouverneur Morris, or sometimes Governor, I mean Governor Morris, but I like to say Gouverneur because that's how it's but Old Governor Morris there uh, in New York, uh, said that the Constitution, he wrote the Constitution. He wrote a lot of the language, but of course, it doesn't matter who wrote it. It matters who ratified it and what they said about ratification. Now, Morris is interesting. I like Governor Morris. I think he's an interesting fellow because Governor Morris was essentially saying that we've got really discordant things here in the United States, and if we have a national government, that's really not going to be work. He said the Constitution wasn't compulsory. Well, if it's not compulsory, that means you can leave it. But Anton doesn't say that either. In other words, in recognizing the universal ground of individual rights and in choosing to rest the legitimacy of their new government thereon, the founders were not saying or implying that Americans had any obligation to extend the enjoyment of such rights to the rest of mankind. Much less were they making any attempt to do so. They were simply explaining the ground of their revolution and the basis of their new government. The Declaration of Independence is quite clear on this point. In splitting off from Britain, the American people assumed among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them. Separate means just that. We're a nation. Well, not really. I mean, not even the founding generation wanted a national government. They said as much over and over again in the ratification debates. We're, we're not a nation. A nation is a singular group of people. And no one, I mean, look, James Wilson would argue that. Hamilton might argue it to a point. 
But no one really believed that in the founding. Even Governor Morris said it. You can't join our nation unless we collectively invite you. You may have, by nature, the same rights as we have, but our government secures only our own rights, not yours. I mean, this is convoluted, right? This is weird, in a way, that he's doing this. He's trying to get around some things here and wax philosophic about some inherent weaknesses in his own positions. As to Gottfried's second point, he is certainly correct that the founders did not believe that all human beings were, at that time, fit for Republican government. They well understood that republicanism is a rare plant, yet a division in the founders' thinking emerges. Some, let us call them the more optimistic or liberal, believed that progress would eventually make all or most of the people of the world capable for vindicating and maintaining their natural liberty. Others doubted this would be, ever be the case. With respect to foreigners, it hardly matters which side of the debate is correct. The United States, in principle, could go on as a natural rights republic regardless of the fate of liberty in other countries. At the very least, whether or not countries that were not free at the time of the founding ever became free. The fact of liberty's establishment in 1774 to 1789, a time when republics existed almost nowhere, shows that its existence was here and therefore likely still is, not dependent on its existence elsewhere. Now, liberty's establishment. This would say that there wasn't liberty before that. There was established liberty in America before 1774. In fact, this is what the founders talked about. We have the rights of Englishmen. We've had all these liberties for all these years, and you're trying to abridge those. We have these liberties because in 1215, the Magna Carta gave them to us. In 1688, 1689, the English Bill of Rights codified that. We have these liberties. The English liberties we have are inherent because we're Englishmen. These liberties were not established in 1774 to 1788. This is stupid. That's a stupid argument. Because... What were they, I mean, they're not creating anything new here. They said as much. Jefferson said as much. There's nothing new. These are the things we all thought. For generations, we thought these things. And yes, liberty may not be, I mean, it doesn't matter if France has this, or Spain, or, I mean, take a smaller country. uh, As we start to see these countries break off, you know, Brazil, Argentina, China, Russia, doesn't matter what they have. It doesn't matter, you know, Sudan. It doesn't matter what they have in Sudan. It matters what we have here. I agree with that. Our liberty is not dependent on the liberty of some other entity. Applying this thought to fellow Americans, however, is much trickier and touchier. My read of the founders is that Gottfried is correct to say that they believe their principles did not require the granting of full rights to everyone merely living on American soil. That is, they believe that uh, morally... uh, Morality requires, I'm sorry, that certain basic rights to life and property above all be guaranteed to all, but other rights, vote or petition the government, be reserved only for citizens. In other words, they believed it permissible to treat certain residents like foreigners who as human beings deserve protection, but who as non-citizens do not have any right to participate in the government. We may wonder whether such an understanding is truly consistent with the Founders' broader natural rights principles, for just because they believed it doesn't mean they were right. After all, a core paleoconservative argument is that the Founders didn't really understand the full consequences of their assertion that all men are created equal. No, 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 no. That's not what we argue. See, he, he's, he's making things up. That's not what paleo... If I'm going to be lumped in the paleoconservative, it's not what they argue. They argue that equality is not what you think it is, Anton. They would say there is a commitment to equality, but what kind of equality? 
Liberty trumped equality, but there was equality there, and it was, as the founders themselves said, political equality. They didn't have it. It's possible, then, that thinking through the distinction between citizens and denizen is the context of natural rights would lead to the conclusion that while a natural rights republic is justified, even required to treat foreigners as non-citizens, it may not justly do so to per, uh, permanent residents of its own soil. Whether that answered, whatever to answer that answer to that question, it seems to me a practical matter, a bad idea for a free republic to make such a distinction. Doing so divides the population, produces feelings of enmity on one side and guilt on another, and undermines national unity. Borrowing Lincoln's famous pronouncement that he, as he would not be a slave, so he would not be a master, he would not not or cannot be a citizen, should not be a denizen. Gottfried asks, how exactly do I intend to put the genie equality back in the bottle? I have a simple answer. I don't. I expect the present regime, which is not the founder's regime, to run its course. I have no allegiance that I can stop it. Well, wait a second. The 1619 Project would say the present regime is the founder's regime because they believe in the proposition nation, and their definition of equality is equity. And this is essentially the bottle that Gottfried is talking about. You kicked the bottle over by talking about this proposition nation. This became the conservatives' consensus, and the left is simply running with the same thing, two sides of the same coin, and they believe it, so this current regime would be the founder's regime. According to Michael, he's going to say, well, it's not. It is. It is. This is the problem with the, with the neoconservatives. It is their regime. Joe Biden could just as well be a neoconservative. Slap an R in, behind his name, and the conservatives, the Republican Party conservatives, would back Joe Biden up every day of the week. They would do it. And we know they would do it because this happens all the time. They're two sides of the same coin. My interest in pursuing this question has three sources. First, the simple, the simple inquiry. I want to know the truth for truth's sake. What was the founders' understanding of political principle? Natural right and rights, equality, and all the rest. And that under, is that understanding true? The second is historical. And is what I described in my last piece as the egalitarist catastrophe a direct result of the founding, or does it have another source? If so, what is it? The third is practical and ties together the first two. If the founders' understanding was wrong, we need to know, both for truth's sake and so that we may get our politics into better order. If the founders' ideas led to the present disaster, we need to know so that we can correct and avoid them. If, on the other hand, the founders' ideas are right, but were later corrupted, we need to know who that in order to avoid making the same mistakes in the future. Well, see, here's the problem. It's not the founders we're really talking about here. It's really Abraham Lincoln. We're not talking about the founders. Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. It's what Gary Wills said in his book on the Gettysburg Address. It's what he did. Nobody adhered to that vision of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. Lincoln is not directly tied to Thomas Jefferson. It's clear if you just read Jefferson. It's clear if you read the actions or understand the actions of the founding generation. It's all clear. But see, Lincoln becomes the linchpin in all this. He's everything. He's the neoconservatives, Harry Jaffa, the Straussians made Lincoln a conservative, which no conservative before that ever thought. Lincoln was never a conservative. This idea that the conservative Lincoln, no, he wasn't classified as a conservative. Maybe among the Republicans, he was not as reformist-minded as they were, but he still was a reformer. He was on the left. Quite simple. He was a corporatist, which the left loves corporations. This is what he was. 
He says, while I expect the present regime to run its course, I do not expect it to last forever. It will be succeeded by something, unless the cause of its fall is a cataclysm of world historical magnitude. That something is unlikely to be the emergence of heroic knight kingship or a warrior caste aristocracy. It will rather involve some measure of deliberation about what to do next and on what ground. Who knows what comes next? You can't predict that. We don't know. The Greeks thought everything was cyclical, and maybe it was. It's not clear to me whether Gottfried believes that egalitarian catastrophe stems directly from the founders' ideas or from a later corruption or misinterpretation, whether deliberate or honest mistake. I repeat for clarity that my school and I believe it stems from a later corruption and specifically a deliberate rejection of the founding principles. Well, yeah, like Abraham Lincoln, but that's not what you th- what you say. I mean, your your position is that it's Lincoln was articulating the founding principles, but no, no, no. Wilmore Kendall and others. I mean, this is they were right about this. Mel Bradford, they were all right about this. Jaffa was going to destroy American conservatism because what is passes for conservatism now is not conservative. It's not. Michael Anton is not really conservative in the American traditional sense at all. And thinking about what might come next, I have yet to conceive of any organizing principles superior to those of the founders. Should the present regime one day cease to function, there will still be people alive on the North American continent who self-identify as Americans and nothing else and who profess themselves to believers in Americanism. Well, what is that? An ism? There's no ideology of America, unless you believe in the proposition nation. You see, they've created an ideology. But it's not really rooted in anything traditional. It's something else. They will perhaps in pockets, perhaps in larger groups, get together to self-organize so as to provide for their common defense and other needs. They will very likely wish to set up their new governments on American principles, Americanist principles, that is, not the principles of the present woke oligarchy, but what they understand and remember of the older, better America. Which older, better America? I mean, come on, he doesn't define this. It's possible, perhaps likely, that in the period, early period after a crisis, people will place themselves under the protection of a strong man or some group of neo-elites. One might even say that Aristotle's political science predicts exactly this. But one might also ask, how long could such arrangements last, and just how would they be, be while they did? A core paleoconservative tenet is that nations, no less than individuals, have characters— one will hear a notice disagreement from Claremont on this score. Indeed, one prominent member of our school wrote an entire book called The Character of Nations. But nation of what? Is it a nation-state or a nation of people? Is it a culture? It's a nation. We have to get to this. We have to get down, drill down to what nation actually means. Is it a 19th-century version of nation or some other new version of nation? Well, among the characteristics of the Americans are, or used to be, anti-authoritarian spiritedness and rebellious streak. If these and other traits are still present in the American nation, then I don't think that we can expect any monarchical or aristocratic interregnum to last long. Which brings us back around to the question, what then? If I'm around and anyone asks, I would encourage the emulation of the founders. If Gottfried has any better ideas, I will read them. Okay, yeah, all right, great. Which part of the founders? This is not a monolithic thing, but also in that, I will say there were common tenets but it wasn't equality. It was liberty. Liberty. What he identified in the part before anti-authoritarianism, spiritedness, rebellion, that's liberty. But even in that, there's different definitions of liberty, as David Hackett Fisher has pointed out. There's individual liberty, there's the community, liberty of the community. I mean, what does all this mean? Getting all these sticky words. 
Finally, on my accusation regarding McClanahan's rhetoric, Gottfried does not so much make a defense of the latter as insists that I should, couldn't care because no matter what any of us say, the left will hate us all the same. Of course, that's true. Well, it is true. But it misses my point, which was, never give the left any ammunition. But you have. The neoconservatives have for nearly, what, 60 years now? 70 years? They have been doing this for a long, long time. Getting on 70 years. A long time. There's a reason they lavishly fund think tanks whose minions do nothing but scour media for the slightest misplaced word that they can use to calumnite the right, because it works. They'd cancel all of us, and worse if they could. A piece of writing that, however elusively, makes it sound like the right is really pro-slavery can and will be used against all of it. But I didn't say that. In fact, Gottfried said at the end of his piece, there's no way you can read into that. I didn't. I didn't say any of that. But I'm not going to sit here and say that, well, I have to qualify this, that I don't believe in slavery. Who... Why would we have to do that in 2021? That's the question. Why would we have to do that? Do I think the founders were pro-slavery? Some of them. Absolutely. Do I think they were committed to anti-slavery? It depends on what you define as the term. I would say they were against their own enslavement. Patrick Henry made that clear. But they did believe... They were racists in our current definition of it. They did believe in certain superiority of some groups over others. They believed that some people were naturally able to do things and others weren't. This is what they believed. And their extension of how that worked only went so far. So they weren't a proposition nation people. They believed in liberty over anything else. That was the most important thing for Englishmen, for citizens, and that extended only that far. Now, some of them would go a little further. I mean, look, Anton says it. Some of them would go further, some of them wouldn't. So, you can read into that what you want, but you're distorting essentially what they said and distorting it by their actions. But the larger rhetorical problem with McClanahan's original piece is in keeping with a problem I long ago identified in paleoconservative rhetoric. Namely, an outright hostility to huge parts of American history and the American tradition that most Americans still revere. Well, I'm not hostile to the American tradition at all. I mean, I'm not hostile to American history at all. I'm not hostile to it. A distortion of it, a misinterpretation of it, yes, I'm hostile to that. I'm hostile to Lincoln's interpretation of the past because it was incorrect. That's what I'm hostile to. I'm hostile to a regime, a Lincoln regime, that threw away the Constitution. I'm hostile to that. And look, uh, this has been pointed out in book-length studies about what Lincoln did to the Constitution. I'm hostile to that. Because the, the union that Lincoln preserved was not the original union. And it had really nothing to do with the institution of slavery. Because Lincoln would have preserved the union with slavery before the war. He said it. Well, I mean, I just want to preserve the Union. If you want to keep these states, I'm just fighting to keep the Union together. But what emerged was not the Founders' Union. What emerged was a centralized nation-state. What emerged was a proposition nation that's done everything it can to run over traditionalism in America. That's what it's done. So where do you stop it? What do we do?
This may in fact be one reason why paleoconservatism, despite all its strength and all the things it got and gets right, never gained a wide audience and why its arch-rival, Conservative Inc., which is neoconservatism. If there's paleo, then there has to be neo. But see, Anton doesn't want to call himself a neoconservative because he knows neoconservatism is ridiculously stupid. But he's part of it. Still handily hovers up all the donations. No, 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 no. He doesn't understand what happened to paleoconservatism. Paleoconservatism would have ascendancy right now if it was not for Ronald Reagan. It was not for the purging of the paleoconservatives by the neoconservatives. They did it on purpose. They started booting us out because they had the ear of power. You see, neoconservatives love power. Anton only is anything because he worked in the Trump administration and other government agencies. That's why Anton has any voice. If not, no one would care what Michael Anton thinks at all. Nobody would know who Michael Anton was. They wouldn't care. But because he's been in government, you see, neoconservatives are naturally drawn to government. They're naturally drawn to the power, and they want it. And so then they get out of there, and they can do things. But neoconservatives were marginalized at one point. Nobody cared about them. But they stuck around. They stuck around. They, they weaseled their way in. Like, and they, they're like a, they metastasized in these groups, and they became a cancer. And they figured, well, you know what? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make a calculated deal here. We're, we're going we're gonna to make a calculated effort. That if we say the founders weren't racist, and I mean, this is, this is the 1776 project. We say that these leftists are our heroes. The left is going to like us. This is Anton's main problem. He says it. The problem is if we say something that the left doesn't like, they're not going to like us. They're going to come try to cancel us. My point is they're going to do it anyways. You see, he's arguing the same thing, but he's not realizing he's part and parcel of the problem. He is the problem. So by distorting what the founders are, by lying, essentially, being duplicitous, which I said it is. If you're lying, you're duplicitous. By lying about the founding, you're not scoring any points with the left. You're just giving them ammunition. You're doing it yourself. And you say that we're doing it, but they're actually, you're, you're actually doing it. Because you're making, you're saying, you're, you're validating their vision of America is the right vision of America. This egalitarianism equity, these kind of things. That's what it is. And you have to create a big, large government, Lincolnian nation, to do it. So Herbert Crowley pointed out, Jefferson's great because he believes in all these natural rights and all this kind of stuff, which he wasn't really committed to, but he did believe in these things. But he was too decentralist. Hamilton's great because he also believed in big government. And Hamilton, of course, is, I think, more committed to these ideas of equity than Thomas Jefferson ever was, even though Hamilton would be much more anti-democratic. It's amazing how all this works. The latter embraces, however, false, uh, falsely the mantle of Americanism, while the former appears the, at best ambivalent. It's hard for a movement to claim to stand for tradition when it attacks so much of the tradition it purports to defend. How many normie Americans who know in their bones that this is no longer the country they grew up in, that woke capital and critical race theory are mortal threats, that the deep state is risen on, right on their side, would be inspired by attacks on or dismissals of the founders and the Declaration? My guess, not many, but that's not what I do. I don't dismiss the founders. I just don't make up fairy tales about the founding. I think that's what we have to be real about. And I think this is the main problem with people on the right. They make stuff up. And they believe in fairy tales, the righteous cause myth, the founders weren't racist myth, the founders were, were all anti-slavery. I mean, come on. The evidence isn't there for these things. And I'm okay with that. 
Because I still think you can admire these men no matter what. Not because of those things, but because you can admire them anyways. There's many other good qualities for these people. That's the problem. They can't get around that. This is Anton said it. Well, if the founders are racist, then you can't admire them. Well, I mean, why not? We couldn't admire lots of people in history if we're going to start using 21st century uh, you know, visions of what is right and wrong. We can't admire really anybody. This is the problem with all of it. So you're going to see what I wrote to Anton. I don't know how much it means. We'll see what how it comes out. But uh, Anton is problematic. The neoconservatives are problematic because of things like this. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.